flirtations with the Russians should be regarded as a potential ally rather than a likely enemy. Auckland and his advisers in Calcutta determined otherwise. Dost Mohammed, they decreed, must be removed from office in the interests of imperial security, and the aged and compliant Shah Shuja restored to his throne in Kabul. There was no sign that the Afghans wanted Shah Shuja back, and still less evidence that they would welcome a British army to protect him. But Lord Auckland, in the way of undetermined men, was determined. The British armies would enter Afghanistan early in 1839, and the great game would be settled once and for all. Some 9,500 Crown and Company troops, with 6,000 men under the febrile command of Shah Shuja, formed the Army of the Indus, the principal invasion force for Afghanistan. The soldiers' progress was laborious, for behind them, in an apparently endless stream, there stumbled some thirty-eight thousand camp followers and thirty thousand camels. The army was to live off the country, but took with it nevertheless thirty days' rations of grain and enough sheep and cattle for ten weeks' meat. It also carried an astonishing supply of inessentials. Two hundred and sixty camels, it was said, were needed to carry the personal gear of the commanding general and his staff. Each officer was allowed a minimum of ten domestic servants, most had many more, not counting the grooms for his camels and the six bearers he needed if he took a palanquin. As a military operation, the invasion was a qualified success. But Ghazni, the first place to offer formal resistance, was taken by storm in a neat little coup d'armes, and when Afghan forces consequently fell back in confusion, the Dost himself, refusing British terms of honourable asylum in India, fled north to take refuge with the crazy Nazrullah Khan, Amir of Bukhara, who promptly locked him up. Organised opposition seemed to be at an end, and on August 6, 1839, Shah Shuja, supported by the full panoply of British imperial power, entered Kabul to reassume his throne. Aesthetically, the king's return was fine. His coronet, unfortunately, no longer bore the diamond called the Koh-i-Noor, Light of the Universe, for that well-known gem had long before been extracted by Ranjit Singh as a fee for his hospitality. But in other respects, the restored ruler of Afghanistan adequately looked the part. Beside him rode the representatives of the British Empire, wearing the cocked hats, ostrich feathers, and blue gold-laced trousers of the diplomatic uniform, and behind him the soldiers of the Raj, dusted down and fattened up after their year's march from Ferozepur, demonstrated in simple terms the power behind his throne. Much of the army was now sent back to India, and General Keane went with it, leaving a division of infantry, a regiment of cavalry, and an artillery battery. The Russians had vanished from Kabul, and the capital in its baleful, edgy way was apparently docile. The British settled in. Their chief representatives were an Ulsterman and a Scot. Sir William MacNaughton, envoy and minister at the court of Shah Sujahul Mulk, and Sir Alexander Burns, unexpectedly back in Kabul as British resident. These were now the real rulers.